All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Sense and Signal podcast with Joda and Dan, where we talk about leadership and sense-making in a complex world. And today, we are going to be talking about leadership development, everyone's favorite topic of conversation, I know. How, how are we going to cultivate a new generation of leaders? How are we going to pe- help people advance through their organizations and learn how to lead effective teams in a VUCA environment. And VUCA means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And while we recognize some of those, uh, (laughs) VUCA is a term that is kind of redundant because uncertainty and ambiguity relate to complexity, term people are using. So we're going to use it for now uh, until somebody introduces a different one. But today we're going to talk about things like growth mindset. Uh, We're going to talk about... um, uh, vertical versus horizontal uh, leadership training. Uh, we're going to talk about AI and leadership. So we got a, a number of different topics that we're going to hit on throughout this conversation. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we hope you uh, enjoy this tour of different questions we have about leadership development. I'm what are sorry, you doing, Joda? Can you say that again? I've been busy reading a lot of books recently based upon the number of topics that you have us talk about this time. Um, I'm almost so for those of you book. in the audio world, Joda is holding up a, a stack of books that he's trying to read I simultaneously. Oh, hold on a second. I'm shutting them now. I, I, I don't know. I probably will wing it. We'll figure All it right. out. <laughs> okay. All right. Brain explosion. Yeah, well, that's a lot of knowledge to absorb, and there's a lot of there's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of theories out there to try and explain leadership and how to train leaders. And one of the more important, one of the more dominant theories out there today is growth mindset. So let's talk today, Joda, about growth mindset. There was uh, some research that re- recently came out. Um, and interestingly. Uh, there were two meta-analysis articles that were published in the Psychological Bulletin looking at the metadata on studies around growth mindset over the last uh, few years uh, because it's, you know, you've probably seen it on resumes uh, or on job uh, postings and stuff like that. Like, we're looking for somebody with a growth mindset. And I know in my field of education, everyone's talking about growth mindset. Do you see that a lot, Joda? Yes, I see. I see it a lot. Um, I have to. I have to admit too that I have. Uh, it's a relatively new topic for me. Um, I was not introduced to it um, um, until recently. Yeah, well, um, I think it's one I, of those concepts that have taken hold and really recently spread like a meme through education and and organization training and you know management theories and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and but it, it it is it is definitely something that um, it's a I mind have virus. Begun to is. adopt <laughs> myself. It, um, it makes a lot of sense. It's it seems to me it's a repackaging of concepts that have been around for a long time. It doesn't feel new. Well, let's um, define I'm, it's, what it it's is. It's intriguing why it's controversial to me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And exactly. Let's define what, is it, what it is. What, what what is it to you? What I mean, I have my definition for growth mindset. What is it to you? Yeah. What is growth mindset? Um, functionally speaking, growth mindset is basically getting out of the way of yourself. Basically allowing yourself to lean into into the ability to learn subject matters and to know, I think this is the fundamental thing, to really have the confidence that you can go from zero to one in something. 
okay. that you can do that. And it's not suggesting that you can do it tomorrow. It's just the acknowledgement that you can go from zero to one gives you the the internal psychological psychological confidence and knowledge that you can begin to learn a subject. Right. That's what I think of the growth mindset. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with that. I think it's um, the way I would define it is it's an optimistic mindset. Um, and it's a count. It's opposed to, as opposed to, a fixed mindset. So a fixed mindset is where you think, "Oh, I just don't. I'm I'm inherently born the way I am. I can't grow in certain areas because I'm just not wired that way." You often hear this with, like, math, for instance. You know, I'm just not a math math person. I'm not a numbers person. That would be considered a fixed mindset. Whereas a growth mindset reframes it and says, no, I have the ability to to grow. I might be challenging right now, but if I put in enough effort and energy and, and really try, I can move forward with um, uh, being able to master this discipline. That's how yeah, I define it. Yeah. No, and I, I totally agree. And like I said, to me, it's a repackaging of things that were said before, you know, that I think we can go way back in time. There were probably great philosophers who said very similar things, that you are your own limitation. Um, and I think it's just a business book version now of that very same Thinking. And it's and it's per, and the issue though is that it's pervasive. That's why I kind of used mind virus. I think it's an example of one of these theories that are out there. I would say it's kind of like uh, very similar to um, learning styles. You know, where you have the visual learner and the uh, auditory learner and the kinesthetic learner. Where you know, whereas a, a lot of cognitive scientists have now debunked that theory, but it still lingers in our conversations around education and training, even though our definitions of what that is might not be entirely accurate based on the latest neuroscience. And so I think yeah. this, these studies that were published on uh, these meta um, meta analysis studies on growth mindset are fascinating in that they basically call into question whether it is actually effective. And both of them really do that. One of them is more nuanced and it says, yeah, we did see an impact on, of uh, students who were uh, underperforming already or came from disadvantaged backgrounds, but more competent, not, I won't say competent, but more students that were already successful and maybe were coming from more privileged backgrounds wasn't really having uh, as much of an effect or any effect and maybe even a detrimental effect. And I think both studies kind of found some alignment in, in those conclusions. Yeah. You know, I had a different take from reading this, that article. To me, it felt like an academic uh, game that was being played around semantics. I don't feel like the person That's what who, academics do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't. I don't think it, it did anything to prove or disprove the concept of of growth mindset. To me, it was one person who went back and looked at some data, some very specific. Um, data that said, oh, that specific data didn't wasn't ex executed I, these correctly. Are, these are and, pretty seasoned and, and, researchers, Joe. I agree. They're, no, they're no, no, no. That's no. That's what literally what they. That's literally what the article said. That's literally what the article said. I disagree. That they went that's back not what I read. And they looked at specific. Well, that's what they did. They went back, and she went back. Well, and that's looked what at a meta data analysis that they is. All right, and I'm just saying it didn't prove or disprove the because there's so many other research is out there on growth mindset and those types of things that have shown that it's absolutely effective. And I'm not even arguing for or against. I mean, of course, I'm just I believe, saying I believe well, in a growth I, mindset. You but believe what it. I think I is think is that the person is the person I think you has need to be to, skeptical. Right. Absolutely. No, I love the article. 
I absolutely love the article. But and we'll have it posted in I, the show notes. Yeah. No, well, actually, I don't want to say love the article. What I love was a piece of poetry. Was the skepticism. <laughs> Of the article, or yeah. the skepticism of the topic, right? That's what I actually loved. I mean, and that was the first note I took. Love that someone is tackling conventional wisdom is what you're saying now. It's become conventional wisdom in so many ways. Yeah, because you I see really it appreciate job postings that. all the time. All the know? time, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and you see it, it's just used in its language. And so it has become conventional wisdom. And it's good that people push back on that. But I'm still going to stand by my point. The article didn't really go so far as to prove or disprove. To me, it was just a bunch of academics playing with semantics. I um, disagree with that. I think they did a meta-analysis. They looked at the statistics. They called into question the biases of the initial research uh, that people were going in to prove this. Uh, theory true and so there were already embedded biases there was questions about the methods that were used in some of the initial for studies. a specific analysis for a specific study yes yeah but i mean that's what you have to do you have to analyze the I'm methods not, i'm not denying that i'm just saying it doesn't didn't the argument it was a i, I thought it was I a weak argument well i think it's i think it opens up a door for further scrutiny to growth mindset and i think this is just one of a number of articles that have come up recently around growth mindset so i guess again i get I really don't care about growth mindset imper- mindset per se. What I do care I do. about is that we <laughs> – well, I mean, it's it's a nice idea. It's something that makes you feel fuzzy and good. But no, at the I end think of the day – it's effective. It's effective. No, nah, I mean, it might be for some people, and that's what they're saying. You know, it's, it's saying, like, if you use this method ubiquitously, it might work in some contexts – but in other contexts, it might not work. So if you're putting a certain fertilizer in your garden, this is the metaphor they use in the article. They use, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, they, some, it might, you know, cause your zucchini to grow really big, which is great, but then it might make your tomatoes wilt. So there's context and there's nuance to it, and it, you can't approach it like a, a universal uh, panacea to all of our problems. Um, everything is much more nuanced than it looks on the surface. Again, that is your interpretation. That was that was you know that was again just a couple of people's anecdotal statements, and I I, I agree with that one. I agree with that one statement. No, I'm, it was two studies. Stu- it was two yeah, separate what, studies and, by major universities. And one said that it worked, and one said it, one said it didn't. Kind of. In fact, the person who went back and said it didn't work actually initially said it did work. So even then, there's error. So how do you know well, she said it She's the one who said it worked in some context, and that's where the, I said it. They the very both beginning. said it only worked in some context. They both that's did. what I said at the very beginning in some context. And the problem <laughs> so, is we're that using mean this it as work. A universal. That well, doesn't mean it doesn't work. In some context, it doesn't work. Okay, but and you can blatantly say it works. You're putting on every a job description that everybody's applying to. Not not every situation is going to uh, benefit from a growth mindset mentality. Whoever said that's that. That's what they're saying. No, that, is it never said that in the book. Posting, and then when you're using it in a universal it never, way. I'm talking about the article. It I'm never said saying. that in the article. They it never did. say that. You're no. contradicting yourself, Joda. You just said it's not useful there is in no, every context. I never said that. I never said oh it was God. in every context. No. That's what you just said. You said, I believe in growth mindset. I do believe in growth mindset. As a flat out universal. It, it's a powerful thing. It's universal. I, I, I don't. I, uh, I, yeah. I, they, even they say in both both the studies say it's not universal. No, and I'm not even saying I acknowledge what they said. I acknowledge. <laughs> I'm just saying that it, it. I believe it works 
But regardless, meta conversation on the article, I don't think it was a very, very insightful article. Okay, well, I think I think it opens up some door to scrutiny, and I think we can move Agreed. on from this conversation. I would just encourage people, be aware of growth mindset as uh, a universal principle, right? There might be a lot more nuance to it, and it still need. Obviously, we still need to do a lot more research to determine. And I don't believe in any universalities other than maybe gravity, but even then, that might not be universal. So that's just that nothing's universal. Okay, moving on to our next article, uh, which we will also post in the the, uh, the show notes. We want to ask a question here: Should we be rethinking leadership in the hybrid era? So we're in the post-pandemic. Well, I can't say post-pandemic world because people are getting COVID all over the place right now. Um, so we're in this post-COVID mania phase of our existence where we're kind of learning how to live with covid and because of covid stop breathing on me dan i that's why we're doing this remote man i know your breath (laughs) i can see it i can see it it's coming through the mic out it's spewing my covid germs are going all over the place no i mean you're all possible vectors for for the contaminant now but true um it has forced a lot, as we know, we don't need to rehash this, but it forced a lot of workplaces into remote operations. Now many are going back to hybrid. And it has called into question whether or not we need to rethink how we do leadership training in this hybrid and slash remote era. You know, and a lot of, in a lot of workplaces, and I know this is true where I work, a lot of training and professional development happens casually through the casual interactions you have with people in the hallway and things like that um and opportunities emerge through that as well and that can't it's not as easy that doesn't happen as easily in a hybrid environment because you're working more remotely more often so the opportunity for the chance of those casual encounters to happen are less frequent right wouldn't you agree with that joda or am i wrong here too That was my number one concern about hybrid work or working remotely was the serendipity nature of working together, the accidental occurrences, the accidental conversations, both good and bad, right? Allowed you as perhaps one trying to rise up in the ranks, perhaps hearing a conversation that you're never going to hear remotely because you're just not even remotely, pun intended, in the, in the vicinity of the conversation so that you can't like step up and do some magic and impress some people. All conversations today in a remote circumstance are completely intentional, no accidentality. And I think we, I think we give that short shrift or at least historically we've given it short shrift. I think this article is starting to look at that though. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I definitely see it, you know, in my experience over the last couple of years. And I, you know, my workplace, I'm on, I'm back at work on, on. I'm jealous of that. Physically, like four days a week, five days a week, really. A lot of days. Not jealous now. of that, but I'm jealous that you get to go back. Yeah, no, I'm there all the time now for various different reasons. And I can see the difference. And I'm also teaching right now, as you know, Jodam, after we I, record this, I'm going off to class. And I've I seen, I can definitely. The last class I taught was fully online, and this one is hybrid, and those in-person class meetings are so valuable with the students. I, I, I can I can You've acknowledged that. It. You've got your, you have that, you've got the, you can, your own anecdotal, but very 
visceral oh, experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I can see it in them, too, and the, the type of learning that can happen when we're in person as opposed to when we're online. There's a lot more community, camaraderie. Group work is a lot uh, easier. And a lot of learning comes from that collaborative group work and communication and idea exchange that happens in that immediate environment, right? Which is hard to replicate in a freaking Zoom room. Let me give it, I'll give a couple of just, I, these aren't mine. I just found these on the line. I thought these were just a couple. I'll give a five negative effects of corp of, of companies that work remotely. And these will, most of you will recognize these, uh, communication challenges, uh, reduced social interactions, loss of company culture. That was, that was the Malcolm Gladwell one, right? Yeah. That was the controversial supervision and accountability issues. Um, one I'm not so much concerned about, but I, this article kind of alludes to a little bit. Yeah, because you like uh, to go and, drinking at tw- 11 o'clock in the morning. That's right, exactly. <laughs> and here's one for a lot of people today, especially inequities and isolation. And there's more, but but these seems to be these things seem to sl- maybe perhaps be compounded by the remoteness, right? But Dan, if that's a problem, I think you've also brought up the notion perhaps the remoteness can, if leveraged in a certain way, can solve for these problems in new and novel ways. Am I yeah. correct? Yeah. Well, so the, the this article that we're looking at right now talks about um, three steps that you can think about in terms of professional development for leaders in your organizations uh, to address the challenges of working in a hybrid um, environment. What, the first thing to think about is sense-making, which is kind of one of the th- is <laughs> it's in our name it's it's one of the core themes of our podcast how do we how do we make sense of the world how do we come into an understanding mm-hmm. of the world and um so and how do being, they define that in the article just so people know because they have kind of a specific yeah areas. they do i have it right here um how the organization works around you and how you relate to the organization mm-hmm. so being very intentional and in helping employees who are working in a hybrid environment figure out what their position is so that they can make sense of it, where, 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 where their relationships are, where, do, where do they connect to, and how, how, they, how the organization works around them. You know, so you have to be much more intentional about that because if you're in isolation, and I can see that, if you're in isolation working from home um, or frequently working from home, because this is, again, a, a hybrid context, it's going to be harder for you to see all the other people like you would if you were actually physically working day-to-day in the office, right? You'd, Impossible almost. Yeah, you'd have a more chance to see how those interactions work and how the organization functions. So, yeah, I think it's really about making your position, the position more, making it more transparent where the person sits within the organization and what they they're connected to. And, That's one you know, piece and there, of it. There, there are solutions out there that we're starting to see, you know, that we're trying to address this in really novel ways. And a couple couple versions would be at my office. We have a we have a thing called um, uh, it's a coffee clutch kind of a thing that connects me to people randomly. I don't know how random it is, but I'll get an email once a month saying, "Hey." you want to meet these people this is mm. the, you know two or two three or four people and then i set up the meeting and we met i just had one yesterday and i've, I've met my i've met vps i've met directors i've met uh, all sorts of people i mean that's one thing 
And then there are virtual spaces that haven't really caught on that quite well yet, but ones that allow you to actually kind of engage in sort of in a virtual reality oh. um, that can kind of help you since it really kind of doubles down on vicinity and plays with volume and things like that. And right now they're novel and they may stay novel. And I know, Dan, you saw that video with Lex Friedman. Oh, yeah, that was kind of PO'd you a little bit. But but even uh, then, that might be a, a, what they perceive as a solution. It's scary. You know. I mean, I could see the benefit of it, too. It was, it was the interview with Lex Friedman and Mark Zuckerberg where they did it in the metaverse. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it was uncanny valley beyond the uncanny valley. But <laughs> it's, it's uncanny, uncanny. <laughs> I mean, it was, un, it was uncanny quadrupled or squared. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it was weird. And I could, but I, I mean, I shared it with a bunch of colleagues, actually, too. And one of them said, this is something we need to get on. You know, right, this exactly. is the future. How old, how old was the colleague? Just curious. Did it matter? I was going to say she's probably in her late 30s, maybe early 40s. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. But I want to move Next. on to the other yep. training things that they suggest. Uh, but yeah, making Just, those connections using technology like Coffee Clutch and uh, virtual reality and being very intentional about helping f- people make connections and figure out where they're positioned in the organization. The other one is experimenting. Uh, I, I, you know, encouraging people to experiment um, with their work so that they can learn through the experimentation of trying new things uh, within their position would be another way to um, foster professional development. And I could see that. We talk about that in complexity theory a lot, with, in terms of complexity theory a lot, you know, safe to fail probes, you know, being willing to experiment and, and creating safe to fail environments. I think that kind of aligns with a lot of that thinking. Yeah, I, I, and it's interesting because that one, you know, and I guess from this article's perspective, again, I'm going to say I didn't find this article written all that well, but I think from its perspective, it was suggesting that these things are more important now in a in a virtual environment, a distributed environment. But, you know, that's important regardless, I feel. You know, in my experience, and maybe it's a Gen X thing, it is, you know, doing the work, getting your hands dirty. That helps That helps generate and open up the mental synapses to identify the connections. And if you can set up a system to double down on that, to really lean in on, on learning while doing, I think you're going to gain a lot, a lot of benefit. Because, you know, going to those courses, I agree with, the, with, the, with what it said. You know, you get those courses, it's overload. You get too much information. It, it, you might not, you might already know it. It's not the knowing; it's the wisdom you're lacking, uh, perhaps. You know, and it helps you develop those 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 intuitions by doing it. So, it, I, I want to say it's cool they mentioned it, and maybe they're saying it's more important now than ever. But I think it's yeah. always been important. Yeah, and I think it's just about you know people who are in the L and D space and executives and or managers who are trying to train their teams being really intentional about mm-hmm. allowing for experimentation and encouraging that yeah, so people can agreed. learn from that. And I think the the final point of the article was self discovery, taking some time for reflection, which this is going to come up in a later conversation that we have mm-hmm. about a different article. But um, taking different the time episode. to self reflect, and that I think that's tied to metacognition. A lot of this is tied to uh, metacognition and and to me right because thinking about your own thinking which is what metacognition is is is, is a part it's a sense-making process and the i think where people often slip up and this is true of me for sure 
uh, it's the self-assessment or the evaluation piece of the metacognitive process where after you've done an activity, you've gotten the data back, do you really take the time to really reflect on what you've learned through your experimentation or through the active learning uh, so that you can advance and improve next time? Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, in our previous conversation about growth mindset, it's you know, my argument or a lot of people's argument. It's really powerful to believe you can accomplish something that opens the doorway for you to go into it. But it needs to be tempered by the by the acknowledgement that you can. Well, we don't use fail in this in this podcast, but you can not we use safe to fail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and and that it's acknowledge that that you're not perfect and you have to learn along the way and you're going to make mistakes. And it's important that your leadership or your fellow leadership in, allow, like you said, allows for you to take those moments to think about how you you screwed up. You know, it's so scenarios when you got caught by your parents and and I'm not sure if you've ever had these, but I had a kind of a hippie dad at times and he'd be like occasionally Doug's be a like, hippie? He was, yeah, yeah, <laughs> surfing hippie. And occasionally under good circumstances he would say, Look, I already know you messed up and I know you know you messed up. You don't need to hear it from me. Take this time to think about what the problem was. It's okay, move on with your life. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's good to have that in your in, in in work as well. You know, so yeah, agreed. Yeah, no, that, that, that that's really important. So, I mean, these are hopefully just some things to think about as you, if you're working in a hybrid workplace about, you know, how to continue to develop your, your leaders in your organization when they might not be working on in the, or within the, the, the building all the time and they might mm -hmm. be working remotely. So, um, and I think this brings us to our next topic, Joda. Should we be training leaders to be more empathetic and compassionate? So, uh, yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about empathy on this uh, podcast in terms of design thinking and also mm -hmm. leadership. Um, but there's some interesting studies that uh, are out around around this topic. Someone saying that maybe empathy is not the final step. Maybe you need to take the next step beyond empathy and to become a compassionate leader. And there's one on uh, one of the articles and I'll try to, again, I'll post it in the, uh, the, the, um, the show notes. And I will also hopefully provide some screenshots of some of the images I'm talking about here, but there's one graph, uh, that I think captures this real, this idea really well, which starts off with pity where you feel kind of sorry for somebody, but you're not really experiencing it. You've just kind of, you're really distanced, but you have some, I guess they use the language of pity for somebody. That's not ever good, right? And it's uh, interesting and the way that the pity. When I saw that, you know, I've even I even have thought of pity as as almost what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, having a sense of disdain in a weird way. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, there is there's, a connotation of that. There is in my mind, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but yeah. No, no, I think you are. I think there's there's definitely a connotation of disdain within the word pity. The next level up for them is sympathy, where you cognitively understand where they're coming from, but you're not necessarily experiencing what the other person is uh, talking about. Step up from that is empathy, where you you feel it. You feel the emotions that are being conveyed to you. You're able to step into the other person's shoes. Um, and this is where not... we begin to lose sociopaths and psychopaths is in this zone. <laughs> According to some of our guests, yeah. That, yes. Or they can fake the empathy, right? They're going to be right. dark but empaths. Really who, yeah. 
oh, maybe co- they're maybe master sympathizers, right? The dark empaths, right. where they can yeah. cognitively make sense of what's what you are conveying, but they're not really feeling it. Well, the yeah, they've been collecting. They're constantly collecting data to see what works and doesn't work under certain circumstances. Exactly, but, they're, but they're, they're the, the motions are not really there. Yeah, and then em- true empaths are feeling those emotions and getting it, stepping into your shoes and understanding your point of view. The final step is compassion, according to this this framework, where not only are you feeling what the other person's feeling, you're actually taking action to address their needs. Now, mm-hmm. there's actually two articles I've read about this, and one of them makes a really good point about the dangers of empathy, you know, in leadership, and that relying just on your feelings can be a dangerous place to be, right? So while you want to have empathy because it's going to lead you to compassion, uh, and we'll get to the nuances of how to make a good, compassionate response to somebody's situation in a, in a moment, but I want to linger here on the dangers of empathy for a moment that they talk about. And, and it's that you might not be seeing the full picture because you are just feeling what the other person's feeling. And yeah, people, come, I know in my, in my world, I've seen many times where people have come to me and shared their feelings. And I know I'm right because this is how I feel. That's not objective reality, and so you might not be seeing the full picture just because you're having a certain emotional experience. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, And then we've even gone through the notion that there are such things as dark empaths, and I think we probably all have the ability to be a dark empath at times. You know, you you can feel that you can actually kind of feel feel the pain, but you leverage it for um, Machiavelli ways. You know, you 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 use it against the person. So. Empathy is a powerful tool. It's a powerful aspect of humanity. It's what makes us, a, it's probably the glue that holds us and our other primates together is to be able to understand the other other being's pain. Well, um, it's yeah, important and, to recognize that, you know. And I don't, yeah, and I think in this context, we're not really talking about dark empathy. Yeah, dark empathy, we've no, no, heard no. many discussions about it. Dark Absolutely, empathy is a bad yeah. thing and it, it, it can be a sociopathic Machiavellian thing. But in this case, it is legitimate empathy. Like so, and you have certain people who might, you know, um, I'm going back to the Jonathan Haidt, you know, um, research on values. You know, you have some people who might have a higher capacity for caring uh, for other people, and so they're probably going to have a heightened sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. And so you, like the article states, you put them in a situation where they have to make a decision, a medical decision about somebody's situation, and they hear this story about the cancer patient and their personal right. story, and that's going to move them. And so they're going to make a choice to rank that person higher in uh, a selection process for a treatment. And I that found might that, actually. I found- I found that very interesting, you know. Yeah, and, that and, might actually and we all hurt. know it. And I've had issues. I've had arguments with people in the past, you know. And and in some respects, James Bond villains are the ones who are, you know, some of the James Bond villains are like, "I'm going to kill a million people because I'm going to save a billion people," right? That kind of a thing, you know. Right. Sometimes you have to triage 
um, in certain ways that force you to sort of be counterintuitive to your direct empathy. You have to think in a bigger picture. And, and yeah. I'll recommend a book to people called The Hard Things About Hard Things, which is a great book about um, a business owner, creator, innovator who wrote about how it's just hard to be a boss and the hard decisions you have to make. And you just got to make them. And it's not – and they're kind of counter-empathetic in some way. But when you step back, you realize it is sort of like pulling the Band-Aid off fast, right? Some people are, yep. oh, that's so mean. And then others are like, no, it's great. It's, it's oh, It hurts the bad immediately, but it's over faster. you know. So, yeah, empathy can get in the way of making the right decision, right? Which yeah, brings us to the to next thing, right? Yeah, to compassion. And so they provide some uh, recommendations, which I agree with, on, on how to make – how to respond compassionately. So you you respond empathetically. So there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But then you take that next step forward and turn, go from empathy to compassion. And mm -hmm. there's some moves that they recommend that you can make, uh, like taking that step backwards to look at the situation more objectively. Don't get sucked in. They also talk about self-care within this. And I think those two are interrelated. Like, because you sometimes have to, you know, you can feel the experience and understand what somebody's going through, but you don't want to get sucked too far into it because that could damage you as well and also obscure your opinion. That you qualify those as, as, as really. And yeah, you're right, because you can almost say taking a step back is under the umbrella of self-care. Right, yeah. you're protecting yourself a little bit. They've just made those distinctions, uh, and I've actually captured a couple of things because it's important for people to understand how to do the self care. A lot of us in this busy world are just so proactive, never stop to breathe, never stop to sort of love yourself. And sorry for the hippie moment. And so, a couple things to kind of think about under what self care even means would be practice some mindfulness techniques, forms of meditation, breathing, um, engaging in physical activity. You know, Yoga. Getting away, that helps you get away from the problem. And also helps you feel better and there's also lots of cognitive science out there that says being fit in fact watch one of our episodes uh that moving helps you sort of recombobulate yourself yeah Practice and drinking i like to move my arm like that was also in the book yep yeah yep, exactly yep. has nothing to do with the alcohol um <laughs> and self self-compassion do you even know what that even means we're talking about compassion do you have it for yourself you know again um, I saw this this great movie years ago, and I can't remember the name of it, and I'll try to remember where a father's talking to a depressed son, and the son asks his dad, he says, Dad, if I fell, me and Mom fell in the water, who would you say first, right? Kid's kind of having some existential moment, and the dad goes, well, I would actually go save your mom first because it would make it more because if i got her then it would be more likely i can get you now the logic doesn't really totally hold right but the notion is that you, you can't help anybody unless you're helping yourself first and that right, might sound right. selfish but it's freaking true make sure you're capable to help people yeah and that's part of self-care too yeah are you yep. ready are you taking care of yourself enough so that you can take care of other people um so yeah so taking a step back self-care um, helping them help themselves. So not necessarily providing solutions or solving the problem for mm -hmm. them, but almost in a coaching way. So what can you do about this situation? What are some options? Here's a menu of things. And I love that. I love that one because it, it, it returns the power back to the person who is having the problem. On some yeah. level, you don't which, always need to be a savior, right? You don't need to be a savior. And, and, and yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and, Oftentimes, the person having the problem actually knows the solution to the problem. They're just not doing any of these things that we're talking about so they can actually 
solve it uh, accurately or correctly. And so, I'd actually yeah, even argue know. that you're helping them self-actualize more by absolutely. Ha- yeah. yeah no, no, sorry. Them, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Agreeing, like yeah. you're empowering them and helping them self-actualize more, so that the next time this situ- a situation similar to this comes up, they have actually developed those tools to be able to solve the problem themselves. Yeah. Um, and I, this one I really like, this other suggestion they make is asking what they need or want. And I have found this a v, to be very effective in conflict situations. When somebody comes to me with a complaint, and I've seen other people do this as well, taking a moment to say at the end after they've vented and shared their situation saying, so what do you want from me? What can I do? What do you want? What, what outcomes do you want after sharing this? And sometimes it's the outcome is I just want to vent. It doesn't need to go any further than where it's at right now. Other times they might ask for specific things to be done. And then you come to an agreement about what you're going to do to resolve the pro- help resolve the problem and what they're going to do to help right. address the situation. Yeah. And, and it's important, you know, it's not just in what you do. Sometimes it's how you do it. So when people, if you're a leader or you're a coworker, and you can see someone's in need and they're coming to you or slightly coming to you for help or need help. And you feel like you're in a position that you should probably try to help. Um, and you're going to leverage this thing where, and it is, it's powerful. Like, what is it that you need? Cause that's going to arrest them in their spot probably because they haven't really thought about it yet. If they're really deep into the problem, um, how you ask that question is important and you make sure that you're not confrontational. If you're a leader, you might find no, yourself I think like, you have to be empathetic. like Joda, what is it you need? You know, I, I got other things I got to do. What do you need from me now? No, now, no, no, that's, no. It has that's to be kind of from a place of compassion, right? So you're, right. you're saying it like, okay, so we've talked about this. And also, what do you need from make me? Sure you what, what would you like to happen next? Pay attention when they respond. So oh, yeah. you say what they need, and you, they, you've got to make them. And that was one of the things like Obama was famous for. When he would talk to people, people were like, and he would talk to them, and he would like listen. His eyes yep. wouldn't like dis- disengage. So that's going to empower them really to know important. they're in a safe place, even if they can't provide you what you need. You're again, you're going back to you're also know that that question is actually coming from a position of compassion. So you know how you ask a question is important in this scenario. And the final point they make, just to, to cover it, is uh, another another move you can make is also non-action, right? Not, and that's something that we don't talk about a lot. I've, uh, People in leadership positions positions feel like they have to solve everything for everybody sometimes, but sometimes it, a choice is to take not to strategically take no action and in order to help to solve the situation and see if things can resolve themselves too. But that, again, I think those have to be intentional, thoughtful approaches, all of them, uh, when you're mm-hmm. dealing with um, a people in conflict and people uh, having emotional situations. So. Some thoughts on empathy and compassion in the workplace. Are you ready to move on to the next one, Joda? Yeah, I am. Let's do this. All right. Oh, wait, let me get my books. Oh, no, yeah, you have to study. He took took footnotes. He's Uh, grabbing his books right now. uh, 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 Annotated. He was a good student. He annotated his books. So today, next we're going to talk about, should we be thinking about vertical versus, uh, uh, sorry, let me try this again. Should we be thinking about vertical leadership development as a uh, leadership and sense-making framework? And vertical is uh, in contrast to horizontal training. So I thought this was very this distinction between vertical and horizontal uh, was uh, is very interesting in terms of leadership development. And 
I discovered it because of a conflict on LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn has this reputation about being this dry, boring place. But if you follow David Snowden of the Cunevin <laughs> framework, <laughs> it's never a boring place. <laughs> oh, so this is David Snowden. Uh, he was attacking idea. somebody else. David Snowden right. was. I'm curious or what that I should, was. I should use the term attacking. He was. Uh, Engaging in a debate with somebody else about aggressively of, engaging in a debate in, with yes, <laughs> passionately, passionately, passionately engaging, engaging yes, yes, all right, uh, all right. With this debate about vertical versus horizontal leading and showing some skeptical about the vertical. So that led me to investigate this, and I actually kind of, I, I kind of like the framework, and I, I could also see me where too. he would have problems uh, with it as well. Um, and the idea is that. And I do this a lot because I do a lot of professional development work. I engage in a lot of the horizontal leadership training or training where we make sure information is disseminated and connections are made. But that's kind of a more horizontal um, approach to uh, leadership development. There's this other way you can approach it, which is more vertical, which is focusing on the developmental stages of the leader. And it's kind of an extension of Piaget. Uh, Piaget, for those of you who know education, was a researcher. And he kind of really was one of the founders of this idea that people develop in stages, developmental stages through childhood. And this theory extends it even further by saying that leaders also continue to develop in stages and that part of our leadership training needs to focus on that and identify where people are in their leadership development and move them, find ways to move them to the next stage uh, through educational opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, this was actually, I, I really liked the, the two articles that you shared with me that, that discussed this. I'd never heard the terminology before. So this is, so this is one of those moments, Dan, where you, you leveled me up. Um, although I didn't have the language, it's been something I have discussed and professed with my fellow workers and leaders in the past that, you know, there's a reason. And of course, I'm going to be generalistic here that there's the, the way a 21-year-old sees the world and thinks about things is different than a 50-year-old thinks about things. The 21-year-old will typically have left, less life experience, won't see the patterns, won't quite, and is still working out on how to make connections, is still working right. out how to engage. And don't get me wrong, you're always figuring those things out. But as you move forward in life, and typically if you are a growth mindset person and you're sucking in information you get better at it and when you're in your 40s 50s and 60s there's wisdom and i feel like that's what this conversation is really about that there are wisdom levels and that wisdom is accrued and you should account for that when you're thinking about hiring and so i found this actually a cool and now i have the words to use which is basically vertical leadership and i like that yeah, and I want to define some of the terms they use uh, with the levels. They, they offer three different levels. The first one is the dependent conformer. That would be the first stage of the leadership development. Uh, there's characterized by being a team player, faithful follower, reliant on authority. Uh, I totally direction. recognize that. When I was in my 20s, that is exactly who I was. I mean, that is exactly who I was. Yeah, because you were learning. You needed to rely on other people, aligns mm -hmm. with others. You want to make partnerships and be a part of a team. You're just one of the members of a team, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then moving up is the. Oh, but in- I would add that I think they're missing one piece. Okay. When you're tw- in your twenties, you are ambitious. So when it says you're a member team, you're also probably slightly more selfish. You're trying to get ahead. You're trying to be noticed. And maybe that was a '90s and 2000s thing. Maybe Gen Z and Y are different. But I would think that would still be a component, which I find interesting. They yeah, I think it's a potential. I could see that as being a potential because you're still striving. You're trying to figure out where your niche is and where your what your, what your where your place is within the um the organization or and in the world really too. That's right. So the next level up is independent achiever. Uh, this is an independent thinker. Uh, they're more self-directed, drives an agenda. So they kind of outline where we're going, takes a stand for what they believe. So the one that stand up and say, hey, we need to do this thing. And then they're guided by an internal compass. So we're starting to see some moral development here, too, at this stage. Probably a better understanding of the world and so that they feel more confident in taking a stand and um, having some drive to uh, be more self-directed. They don't need someone to tell them what to do. Moral directed. Do you think there's also an empathy thing that starts to develop at this stage? Probably, because I mean, I think at this stage, they're pro- you can probably look back and see where you were uh, when yeah. you first entered the the workplace and go, okay, I you know I know I've done this. I'm like I don't want to, I don't want what happened to me to happen to some other people. So I'm yeah. going to make sure that that doesn't happen um, by being a better leader. <laughs> and then there is the there's the swimming with sharks. Great movie if anybody didn't see it, where you've kind of gotten to a level. And you had to go through shit to get there, and you make sure that everybody else has to go through the thing crap because if you had to, you might, you know, so do they. Um, I don't think there's probably too many managers that are like that, but I can imagine some. I can see that some go, that are like that. Closing the door I, I behind you. Yeah. No, yep. no, it's, it's, it's very toxic. So the final level the uh, is the independent collaborator. These are independent thinkers, see systems, patterns, like you were talking about, Joda, and connections. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a longer-term thinker. They see farther, farther out. Uh, they hold um, multi-frame perspectives. I think that's really important because one of the issues I think I have around the world in general is people kind of glom onto one view or framework for understanding the world, like growth thinking, and don't look at other frames that might explain a phenomenon. And then finally, um, holds contradictions, the ability to hold contradictions. And I'd say this is the type of person who really is able to lead in a complex environment, mm-hmm. right? Because those are all attributes you need to be able to leave in a complex VUCA environment. Yeah, yeah. And let's not mistake, and these aren't, these aren't really necessarily leadership qualities, although they are things that need to be in a leader at those stages is what it's saying. But there are other things that you need to know to be a good leader. But these are sort of stages of cognition and how you model the world. And, you know, my anecdotal experience is it maps 100 very close to my reality. I don't think it's a coincidence at this stage in my career, all of a sudden I discover systems thinking by like David Cabrera's approaches and it resonates with me. It, it, it was a model, it was a, it was a tool, uh, a mechanic that allowed me to now put a framework around the way my mind is now thinking, which is seeing these systems, seeing these connections. It gave me a language, which I didn't have. Then those don't come about automatically. They can come out from an immersion sort of experience. But, you know, it, I don't think it's a necessarily a coincidence that these are now the, the, the tools that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the latest version of, of, of Microsoft Word so I can do a mail merge. You know, that's not where my head's at anymore. Right. I'm trying to figure out how do I get Dan 
to connect with Lisa so that those two can be better at what they're doing. I'm going to say and, it's even, from my perspective, it's even bigger than that, right? Like okay. when you're thinking about systems, it's like, how can I change, how can I help reshape entire organizations? Right, true. Through, yeah. you know, not just one mind or two minds, but collective yeah. minds uh, to help the organization move forward in our complex world. Totally How can agree. I have the most impact through the systems I'm setting I up? I think you begin to have more comfort. You're more. You become more comfortable living in complex and com- complex environments, and complexity begins to be the fun challenge for you. Yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I, the, I the love thing complexity. you want to solve for. Yep. Yeah. No. You know, you want to be a master at, at thriving in that environment, and so they do provide. This research does provide some recommendations about how to help leaders develop these to move along this um the scale right um these develop how to move along these developmental stages one of them is heat experiences or stretch thinking providing opportunities for people to experience what they call either heat experiences or stretch thinking and that's facing complex situations that disrupts or distorts or disorients our habitual ways of thinking. And I think we've all probably at one point or another had these experiences where we have one way we're viewing the world. Some incident happens, some situation happens. And as you gain more knowledge about what happened, it breaks your preconceptions about how you thought the world was operating. And so have you had you heard of this terminology? Is this a terminology you've I've never heard this. No, I, this is new for me too. So and I, I'm not sure I completely understood what they meant here. So what this is they're saying basically throw you into the put some fire underneath you essentially kind of put a little turn up the heat a little bit so that you can feel some pressure basically the classic let's put some pressure on this guy see what he's made of that kind of scenario well i think providing opportunity i'd say it's multiple there's multiple levels of way to interpret this to me one is being open or being able to identify when some when a heat situation is happening because they you know it sounds like it's a very it's a complex situation that's emerging, right? Yeah, or it's a situation yeah, yeah. that's mer- emerging in a complex environment that has high levels of uncertainty and ambiguity and interconnection. Um, we all hallmark hall, all hallmark hallmarks of complexity, and so being able to recognize when that situation's emerging what would be one, and so you're able to identify it, encourage people to participate navigating that kind of situation. Yeah, you don't want to scare people off, you know? Yeah, and say, okay, well, we're just dealing with this heat situation and just giving it that name. um, Or we need to stretch ourselves because we're in this complex, emergent complex situation. Um, And I I can see... No, I was going to, if you're going to, before we move on to the next one, I was going to say, you know, and to me, it resembles this notion of flow, right? As a leader, you want to get your, everybody in the workforce to be in a state of flow and even your leaders and, and reductively, right? Flow is, 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 is not necessarily a state of enjoyment or fun. It's a state of flow. It's, it's a, it's a, it's where you feel actuated in the space that you're in. You feel competent in the space that you're in, but you're also slightly pushed, there, there are things that you have to solve for. However, you don't feel necessarily like you can't solve for them. And once you feel like you can't solve for them, you're out of flow. 
and you go into tilt, and then you don't you don't succeed. Well, I mean, I think well. this is a good example of non-action too, right? Like if you see a, a leader in your organization who's in a heat situation, uh, a, a very complex, ambiguous, challenging situation has just emerged mm-hmm. for them that they have to solve. Now you could probably maybe you're you're used to it, so you can go in your flow state and just kind of go solve all their problems for them. That's not really going to help their leadership development, right? Sometimes standing back and letting them figure out how to navigate the situation and kind of coaching as you can from behind, but really letting them take the lead can That's be a, maybe a more effective approach in the long term. But I think to your to your earlier point, you there's a there's a balance there because you, you can set someone up for failure, and maybe you're interested to see how they handle failure. Maybe that's a thing. But you could demoralize somebody in those circumstances. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you know, want to make it against. Yeah, you all everything has to be is nuanced and has to be intentional. But I mean, to that whole idea of heat, and I could also see that creating a heat environment. You know, in some cases, if you're trying to create a lot of change uh, and disruption. You know, I could also see it being manufactured too, but you know, in our world, our VUCA world, I don't really see you needing to do that. Plenty of uh, heat situations seem to pop up on their own without having to artificially manufacture one. But another persp- another piece of this uh, to help train people to help them move along these developmental uh, stages is colliding perspectives or new ways of thinking, and that really involves bringing people together who have different ways of thinking, have diverse perspectives uh, so that they can challenge our different worldviews so that we have, again, a more complex perspective of the world. And we've talked about this before in the podcast too, Joda, the importance of that. Yeah, it's um, it's time and time again, there are studies that show, it's just on teams in general, that you want to have a diverse group of people bring in diverse ideas that can challenge, well, we just said earlier, conventional wisdoms, dogma. Um, when you get like-minded people, you surround yourself in echo chamber, um, you don't get a lot of true meta conversation. And it's really, that's again how you're going to learn, both through explicit conversation and implicit engagement. You know, like you said, it doesn't have to be what people say. It could be how they react to you. Maybe they stop responding to your emails for, after a while. You're like, whoa. Okay, I guess that email wasn't right. So, yeah, you need to be in the fray with people and get that sort of feedback. And the final one is elevated sense making and collaborative networks, you know, and I think this involves really engaging in sense making activities and encouraging your folks to uh, engage in sense making, which involves everything from reading and researching to having those discussions with. Um, a diverse networks of people and teams of people. So they develop the skills to make sense of this complex world. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. You're yeah. looking for tools. You're looking for, you, when you're at that stage, you're finding, you're trying to find language. You're trying to find models to sort of make sense of the world. Again, going back to my experience, you know, I discovered um, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Systems thinking, you know, and then there's even there's the Kinevin theory, you know, and uh, it, it's no coincidence. And that helped helped me. It gave me a language and a mechanism by which to then begin to make sense of the things that were coming in my brain. I got these wild thoughts. What are they? Well, that's going to kind of happen as you as you as your brain expands. And as if you're an inquisitive human being and you're trying to take in the world and comprehend it and fix and solve for problems, it's going to just naturally happen. 
and you're going to pick up tools along the way to help you make sense, like spy glasses and telescopes and measuring sticks. You're going to yeah. find those from soft for soft skills as well. Keep your mind open for those things. Those frameworks are important. They might not be awesome. They might not be perfect, but they're going to lead you in a direction that's going to be meaningful for you. Yeah. And, you know, a uh, final point I'll make on this is I do get the criticisms <laughs> of this framework in terms of the developmental stages. You know, they're very, you know, specific stages there's three right and the as we know and this comes from complex our understanding of complexity and systems thinking too the world's a lot more blurry than that right so <laughs> they're not they're, there's never going to be a very distinct like i'm in this developmental stage now i've hopscotched over here to this stage and now i'm somersaulting to this stage it's not going to be like that <laughs> it's going to be a lot more blurry so i get some of those criticisms to this but i think to your point joda the vertical having the language of the vertical versus horizontal can be useful in trying to describe and think about and intentionally incorporate leadership development at our organizations. So okay. this is okay. an interesting can I, one. Can I ask you, I, I, we, you we've had our run-ins with uh, David Snowden. Not just kidding, not really. But but David, like you said, you've brought up some of his controversial uh, approaches to or thoughts on subject matters. Can you give the audience and I a sort of a synopsis of, I think you kind of did, of what his critique was. I think that it. was his critique. I mean, I'd have to go back and look. I, I think that was his critique. He was challenging the whole idea of developmental stages um, for adults, as, I think. As clear steps, like going back, because he is about, for folks who don't know, he he has a thing, he's in the, the sphere of complexity theory. And so he's saying, yeah, life is he's way more, more about emergence. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would love to have, David, if you ever listen to one of our shows, I'd love to have you on. You I know would. I've reached out to you on LinkedIn and you've said, <laughs> yes, I'll be on the show. But when I try to schedule, you just kind of, I don't get a response. <laughs> That's all <laughs> Like right. a lot of people That's we asked to be on the show. Right. And, you know, and I want to respond to that too, though, that complexity. And I, I agree, you know, but again, it's a funny argument because that's true for ev almost, uh, this time I'll say almost everything. You know, everything is, life is fuzzy. If anybody's a, any an Alan Watts fan out there, he wrote a book called The Book. And the, that was literally about a book talking about how life is fuzzy and humans have put a grid over this fuzziness. And because it's technically fuzzy, certain, there's lots of areas on the edges that account for, you just can't explain it. Is it this or is it that? We don't know, you know, and there's, the world is pretty much that way. And, you know, so and that's just the nature of, of, of existence, you know, so but to put language and try to put structure on things so that you can actually build is important because yeah. until you actually start to measure, you're not going to be able to actually probably really build good things. And so it just helps you kind of account for the universe around you. The key thing is always keep your mind open to your dogma and to the words and the language. Be cognizant of those things, you know. Be ready to change when you realize the the models you use in the past weren't don't work now or maybe never worked, you know. So, anyways. All right. Well, I think I think that's a great closing thought. I know we had one other thing to talk about on this episode, Joda, but running out of time. So, uh, that was a great tour of some thinking around leadership development Thank and organizations. You, yeah, I learned a lot Thank on you. this one. Actually, it was good articles. They weren't too long. You know, I don't like long articles, but they were good, and I learned stuff. So, I I actually have really enjoyed this. Yeah, well, we'll have the articles for everyone else in the show notes. Uh, please make sure to like, subscribe, uh, put your uh, comments in the comment section, and uh, tell your friends about us. Um, yeah. Or enemies, enemies, friend of me. Enemies, friend of me, everyone. So thank you all. <laughs> Hopefully this was helpful, and uh, have a good rest of the day. Bye.